Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers today. and jump at that Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello there, Jane McNaughton here with you today on Countrywide. I'm looking forward to spending the next half an hour with you. Coming up on the show today, as the east coast of Australia grapples with the possibility of blackouts, a major Victorian food processor has slashed its reliance on coal and gas by over 40%, turning potato waste into power and investing in solar. In a bid to avoid further price rises in the vegetable aisle, a small-scale grocer is absorbing the cost of items like lettuce and is calling for major supermarkets to cap their prices. And the annual Cassid and Kelpie muster returned this year. You'll meet the prize-winning pooch. All that and more on today's edition of Countrywide. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. A major Victorian food processor has slashed its reliance on coal and gas by 40%, turning potato waste into power. McCain Foods' Ballarat plant has built a cogeneration biodigester on site, which creates an energy-rich gas by placing organic materials into an airtight container to break down. Engineering project manager for CO2 reduction, Scott White, says utilising 23,000 tonnes of unsaleable food to create power saves approximately 1,600 garbage trucks full of waste per year and reduces CO2 emissions by 15,000 tonnes. Normally that would be land spread, so now we're we're getting best value use out of that by actually putting it through the digester and and creating green biogas. All the solid waste gets uh, watered just to make it into like a movable mass and then it gets pushed into a mill where we create like, it's almost like a paper mache type substance. So you get this sort of white paper mache substance that we create, which is the, the vegetable matter and that all gets mushed up and then... That then is pumpable with a centrifugal pump, so we, we pump that into a pre-acidification tank, which is basically like, a, if you think of it from a cow, it's their first stomach, and it's, it's pre-digesting the food waste. And then from there we pump it into the anaerobic digester where that's got a whole heap of healthy bugs in there, which are basically eating the solid matter, and then they produce methane from that, like what humans and cows and everything do. But we have that in an enclosed environment where we capture all that methane, and then we draw that down and then clean the gas so it's, it's fit for combustion within our cogeneration system. The process of creating biogas also generates heat and the hot air is utilised to boil water to create steam that is used in the manufacturing process, reducing the factory's reliance on natural gas. We're cleaning and scrubbing that gas for combustion in some really high efficient cogeneration turbines and those turbines spin at 70,000 RPM and produce electricity which we step up to 22,000 volts for consumption through the plant and also produce a lot of heat. Um, we blow that heat directly into a boiler which is an Australia first way to do it or methodology. Normally what you do with the heat of a cogeneration system would be to pump that through a heat exchanger and heat hot water um, but there's some inherent losses and it's not always the best way to use it particularly for us so it was more efficient that we directly inject that hot air straight into our boiler where we need steam for our manufacturing process so we greatly reduce our natural gas consumption because of that direct injection of hot air into the boiler instead of injecting cold air or ambient temperature air. 
This investment has added to the manufacturer's established solar farm, and now the plant has reduced electricity consumption by over 30% and lowered the use of natural gas by 16%. Mr White says the environmental sustainability of the project is extremely important, and with energy prices soaring due to the war in Ukraine and cold weather conditions spiking consumer demand on Australia's east coast, there was obvious financial benefits for creating energy on site. We have a massive site here and it's a big energy consumer, so the best use for us is to be able to use that energy on site, being both heat and electricity. It's important that projects both deliver a CO2 benefit but also a cost benefit. We've got to look at what our best bang for buck is for investment for CO2 reduction. So this does offer significant cost savings as well as as major CO2 savings as well. So we look at both. McCain have got really, really stringent global CO2 reduction targets. So... At Ballarat, we're really leading the way in driving a lot of those efficiencies and reductions. The Ballarat factory will begin construction on a solar car park early next year, which will expand the manufacturer's solar capacity. And when combined with the existing on-site solar farm, it is projected to further reduce emissions by more than 12,000 tonnes and produce enough electricity to power 4,500 homes. Those panels will also be bifacial, so not only are they going to generate electricity from the sun as it's beating down, but also from the reflected sunlight that, that um, is reflected off the ground as well. Solar is a key investment. Um, even though Ballarat's known for its, its cold weather and bad weather, we actually have quite high solar radiance, which is basically sunlight hours in here. So solar really stacks up from an investment from our perspective, and we're really committed and, and convinced it's a great way forward. But also on your point about the sun doesn't shine 24-7, that's the beauty of our cogeneration system. It's running night and day 24-7. McCain Foods Engineering Project Manager for CO2 Reduction in Ballarat, Scott White. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. Small-scale food grocers are calling for a cap on fresh fruit and vegetable prices in supermarkets as prices continue to soar. Monique Lunn runs a fresh food store at her family's mushroom farm in Ballarat and says that they are selling goods for the purchase price in a bid to ensure people aren't priced out of feeding their families healthy food. She says the federal government should step in and put a temporary cap on large retailers' prices. We're desperately trying to hold a a price that's going to be affordable for most people. I'm sure it's still going to be out of some people's price range, but we're trying to hold steady with our prices and hope that the volume that comes through just helps push us along a little bit. There's been a lot of discussion nationally about the price of iceberg lettuce, for example. Uh, I walked into one of the major supermarkets yesterday, actually both of the major supermarkets yesterday, and there was literally no spinach or any of those sorts of products either. Uh, How's the supply going for you guys? Uh, It's really tough. I'm really, really lucky that a lot of the guys that I get my stuff through, so I'll always try and buy local first if I can, and then I'll source from outside local if I can't get the products. Unfortunately for Victoria, during winter, we have to source products coming out of Queensland because we just don't have the temperature to be able to produce the volume for our population. We have to bring stuff down from Queensland, which, look, I'm fine with. We we support Australian um, as long as it's Australian. I don't like supporting any imported products. That's all good and well. But unfortunately for, for Queensland, uh, a couple of the areas that are predominant this time of year for, for supplying us with your staples, like your, your broccoli and um, beans and, and all those things, have been hit with floods twice in eight weeks. So it's knocked out two sets of cropping. And, and that's what's causing the massive upheaval with, with lettuce and so forth. 
The number that's been thrown around is that it's costing about $12 for an iceberg lettuce at the moment. How much does it cost at your store? With the mushy farm, we were selling them. I was literally selling them at cost. So I was paying $7 a lettuce and that's what I was selling it for. And we were running it as what we classed as a lost leader. So I've got a few products here that I'm selling at cost just so people can buy them if they want them. The lettuce has since gone up um, again. So what I found was a lot of my customers have switched to buying cos lettuce. So cos lettuce is a slightly cheaper option for people if they're finding that the iceberg's getting too expensive for now. And we sell the twin packs of cos lettuce for $4. Considering smaller farm shops like yourself are trying to avoid passing these extreme costs onto the customers as much as possible, do you think that it would be fair or do you think the government should maybe step in somehow to try and get the large supermarkets to do the same thing considering their profit margins? Yeah, look, their their profit margins are a lot bigger, but their overheads are a lot bigger too. I don't agree with the large chain supermarkets and I've always been very vocal about the way they running their imported products over local products and and so forth because they can get it cheaper and I I certainly don't agree with it. But yeah, I I think there could be some sort of capping, especially at times like this where people want to eat healthy, but let's face it, it's cheaper for a a disadvantaged family or a, a family that's struggling to pay the bills every week to go and buy a $5 frozen pizza and feed it to their kids than going and actually filling a bowl full of veggies and feeding it. Because at the moment, the cost of vegetables is well and truly out of reach. So considering the cap on energy prices, for example, there should be some kind of cap on... There's got to be something that they can do because uh, fundamentally, if you can't... Your body needs fresh fruit and veg to survive. You know, it needs its iron, it needs vitamin D and vitamin C and all these things. And... We need to be able to eat and have access to fresh fruit and veg. And I think at a time like this, it just needs to be, we don't all have to make money or a lot of money all of the time. And, you know, with your large chain supermarkets and that, sometimes you just wonder how some of them sleep at night, really. If we can run our prices as we do and still make enough to live, and I know that it's only for the next probably three, four months that these prices are going to be, as long as they don't get any more flooding, the the prices are going to be so high, you know, how about we all make a conscious effort to just pull back a bit and, okay, we don't make enough to, to live and be comfortable, get through the next three or four months and we're on our merry way again. Monique Lunn from the Ballarat Mushroom Farm and Farmgate Shop speaking there. And just as you were getting your head around the fact that iceberg lettuces have sold for as much as $12 a head recently, how about paying eleven ninety nine for a 250-gram punnet of strawberries? That's the price spotted in a Canberra supermarket this week, and it's all because supply from Queensland growers is a month behind, impacted by wet weather and disease. Queensland strawberry growers president Adrian Schultz says he thinks he might have set a new record. Well, it's unbelievable. It's unheard of, really and actually for Victoria to still be going. If the prices wasn't um, that high, they wouldn't be continuing. Normally, Victoria's finished by now and we're well and truly into our season, but unfortunately, that uh, four to six weeks of cloudy, rainy weather virtually destroyed all of our Queensland's first flush, and that's what's resulted in the shortage. So it must be quite an extreme shortage to see prices rise that high. Is that a record to your knowledge? Yes. (laughs) 
Put it bluntly, it is. That that would be a record. But look, the thing to remember, though, is that people aren't getting rich on these prices. It's because of an extreme shortage. For example, um, I'm aware of a 400,000, 500,000 plant farm that's 10 hectares of strawberries, and he picked 40 trays, which is about 80 80 odd punnets. Now, even at $30 a punnet, if he was getting $30 a punnet, he'd be losing money because he's had to put his staff across 10 hectares to get that amount of strawberries. So it sounds like a lot of money, but even at $30 a punnet, he would still be losing money. And so when you consider that in August last year, I was writing stories about strawberries being sold for three punnets for $2, it's shocking. It's a complete turnaround, isn't it? And I seriously doubt if we're going to see those sorts of prices this season. Uh, I'd be very, very surprised. Um, and this is where we need the supermarkets to step in and support the farmers because obviously production hopefully will improve over the coming weeks. But what we've got to remember is normally at this time of year where the price is fairly decent is where we recoup all our setup costs. And at the moment, 50% increase in fuel costs, our packaging costs, has gone up as well. Cost of fertiliser and inputs has in some cases doubled. Uh, A lot of farms have got uh, massive cash flow problems because, as I said, we're trying to retain our workforce, but we've got very little cash coming into the business. So um, it could have a major impact on, on, on a number of farms. I understand that you've also had real disease issues adding to this strawberry shortage. So at the beginning of our season, uh, we generally uh, have a situation where we have to deal with um, diseases in the soil. These are normal diseases that we we encounter every year, which is uh, fusarium and pythium and crown rots, colotoxicum. But the excessive wet period, four to six weeks just after planting, allowed those diseases to thrive, which has allowed a secondary disease called neopestiloteopsis that we've never had to deal with before, but which exists all around us, um, has certainly uh, had a huge impact and has wiped out uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of plants. And it's always existed, but it's never been a major issue for us here. It has been in America, and um, that's why we're able to to get information about it quite quickly. But the actual disease is called Neopestiloteopsis. Have you had these fields tested, the dead strawberries tested, and found this disease? Yes, yes. Well, look, we, we work quite closely with the Department of Agriculture, and they've had a, a pathologist, uh, Paulo Gomez, who's made himself very available to the industry, and farmers have been able to take samples and send them in to him to get analysed. Look, Jenna, it, it does get quite complicated because what's happened with the weather conditions, it's exacerbated our pre-existing um, diseases, which are fusarium, crown rot, colotroctocrum. And this neopestiloteopsis is a secondary infection, but it's more spreadable, the, the higher death rate because of it. It's coming in and creating a whole other situation that we haven't had to deal with before. Uh, simply because of the weather conditions. And do the plants at all recover or are they dead? Well, that's what we're looking to find out. Like That's what we've been talking to our American counterparts about. And basically they're saying, look, if the weather conditions do improve and they haven't been too badly damaged, they can come back. But we're just about to head into July. We've only got three months of our season left. The farmers, you know, they've got to make the decision. Do they put the effort and spend the money to maintain and keep these plants going? 
or do they just throw them out? So I've seen strawberries priced at $6.99 a 250-gram punnet here in the supermarkets on the Sunshine Coast. Is that typical for this time of year? Uh, No, it's not. Um, That would be a price that you would consider normal for the end of May, beginning of June. Normally by now they've sort of come back to... um, you know, four dollars or three dollars fifty, and that would quickly go down to normal sort of two to two dollar price in the coming weeks. Um, we're not forecasting that price to change very much. For the first flush to get destroyed uh, means that uh, we've got to wait for the plants to, to to get ready for the second flush. They've got to put the flowers on, and um, it's usually four weeks from flower to fruit. So a lot of farms are just experiencing flowering happening again. So it's quite possible that the situation may stay the same for the next month. It's going to be very dependent on the weather. Yeah, I think people are just going to have to accept that strawberries are going to be uh, a little bit more expensive for the next four weeks, probably. It's now been announced that the minimum wage is going to increase too from July. The ABC understands the decision by the Fair Work Commission will mean those workers employed on awards, such as the Pastoral Award or the Horticulture Award, will be entitled to either $40 per week extra or an additional 4.6%. What's that going to mean to you? Well, that's an increase on an increase. We've already had a a change to the award, which has increased the uh, minimum amount that we have to pay somebody to work, and we're having to pay now more money on top of that, as well as um, the increase in superannuation this year. It's a massive impost on employers. Queensland Strawberry Growers President Adrian Schultz. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Jay McNaughton here with you today on Countrywide. A face-to-face meeting between Australia's Defence Minister Richard Miles and his Chinese counterpart this week was described as a small step in the right direction to getting Australia's relationship with China back on track. That's how policy fellow at the Perth US Asia Centre James Bowen sees it too. Although he also says there is still a very long way to go before China starts thinking about reviewing some of the tariffs and restrictions it has in place on around $20 billion worth of Australian exports, including wine, barley, beef, timber, cotton, lobsters and coal. Obviously there's been a pretty deep freeze in um, diplomatic relations between Australia and China for the past couple of years since um, since Maurice Payne called for an inquiry into the uh, origins of COVID. And, you know, but that there's a longer predating kind of um, rising tensions between Australia and China. So it's a pretty significant move, but I wouldn't, you know, be willing to say that this is, you know, the end of um, the deep sort of freeze between China and Australia. It's a pretty small tentative step in the sense that nobody's really come out with any big um, statements around what might be expected to improve the relationship at this point in time. And I think if you look at some of these statements from Australian officials, including um, Prime Minister Albanese, the onus is really still on, on Pina to kind of repair the relationship, to take some sort of responsibility, I guess, in some senses, for the deterioration of the relationship. There's no sign that Australia might make any concessions to its previous stance on issues even like COVID or um, you know, other uh, criticisms of China or its stance on allowing Chinese interest in our um, telecommunications networks, etc. So, so I think it's a tentative first step. Diplomatic relations are always really good. Restoring diplomatic relations to manage relationships to manage the regional stability issues is always positive, but no sign of you know, a wholesale kind of improvement in the relationship just yet. So how would you describe the current state of the relationship? 
Um, well, I mean, everybody, I mean, all countries in the Indo-Pacific region, which Australia calls home, have tensions with China at the moment. Australia is not unique in that sense. There's been a really um, marked escalation of Chinese assertiveness in the past few years. Australia was more forthright in responding to that than a lot of other countries have been. We've actually, you know, called out a lot of aggressive behaviour. Um, you know, I mentioned the the call for an inquiry into COVID-19, which is, a, you know, a remarkably controversial call, I, I would have thought at the time. But some of the, you know, some of the other um, actions that we've taken have been more assertive towards China. Um, and China has really pushed back against more so than, you know, other countries as well. There's been a lot of impositions on our trade around, you know, started with coal and barley, beef, to wine, cotton, various other products. So, you know, Australia has suffered some economic fallout from that, but a lot of the, you know, trade that we sent to China got other um, other exporters took those space and then we were able to exploit the opportunities that opened up in other markets as well. So to some extent, we haven't suffered as, you know, massive economic fallout as, as would have been expected. There's a bit of an uneasy equilibrium, I guess, in the relationship has been for a while. Um, you know, there's always been the big threat that China would threaten Australia's exports of iron ore, the big kind of transformative decision would have been um, ending or putting some sort of restrictions on Australian iron ore to, uh, to China. But the reason that didn't happen is because we do have this remarkable economic interdependence between the two countries and a complementarity. You know, we're a, a massive producer of raw commodities and um, not just uh, mining products, but also agricultural products. So, so, so China's always had a really um, strong reliance on our market. We've had strong reliance on the Chinese market. And the wider deterioration in strategic terms hasn't really kind of ended that to some extent. So we've got a whole series of um, commodities and products that are basically uh, don't have access to the Chinese market. As you mentioned, some of them wine with that, you know, incredible 218% tariff on um, Australian mm-hmm. wine at the moment. There's barley, uh, some beef processors have lost their licence to the Chinese market, timber, cotton, lobsters, coal. Is this meeting a sign that possibly some of those tariffs could be back on the on the table for discussion or for review, or it's that's reading way too much into it? I think it's probably too early to tell at this point. I think you'd want to see a meeting between trade ministers. You'd want to see probably some higher-level um, interactions between the, the leaders, between um, Albanese and, and Xi Jinping, perhaps, or some sort of statements to those effects around looking for improvement in the relationship. But certainly, you know, restoring diplomatic relations of any kind is laying the groundwork for further progress. But I think, to some extent, you know, Australia, the impetus for Australia to diversify its trade relationships, investment relationships, economic relationships more generally hasn't gone away. Um, it's even increased. And I don't think there's been like any broader improvement in the, you know, the trend lines around Chinese assertiveness, Chinese aggressiveness in our region. There's also been a bit of a you know slowing in Chinese growth in the past year or so and uh, there's some signs that the stability sustainability of the economic model is not not as great as we would have thought so so longer term I think that uh, all you know, all producers of commodities in Australia should be looking for, to diversify still they shouldn't have lost shouldn't lose the impetus that happened because of this trade coercion James Bowen a policy fellow at the Perth US Asia Center speaking with Belinda Veraschetti. countrywide. The voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. Now, this is the story that I know you've really been listening in for. 
A Kelpie from New South Wales has taken out the top prize at the Working Dog Auction in Casterdon at the 26th Annual Australian Kelpie Muster, which is held in southwest Victoria. Crowds came from all over the country to watch demonstrations at the auction at Island Park. Megan Hughes had the pleasure of filing this report. 26, black and tan Kelpie hailing from Dubbo in New South Wales. She's two years and nine months old. She fetched $27,000. Her owner, Carly O'Leary, says it'll be hard to say goodbye. Very overwhelming, very intense up there. I got a bit emotional and hard to hold back the tears, but no, I'm, I'm very, yeah, um, yeah, very happy that she's gone to a good home. So I noticed that. She must mean a lot to you. No, she does. I'm with her every day, so... Um, yeah, she, they're all your best mates, every dog that you work with, and yeah, they're part of your family, and I just, yeah, I'm just very happy that she's gone somewhere good. <laughs> Tell me a bit about her. What's she like? Uh, so she's got a big personality, that's for sure. She's very affectionate, and, yeah, she just wants to be with you. So, yeah, and she definitely gives her all when she's working, so you can't ask for much more than that. Ashley and Lachlan Meeburn from Oatlands in Tasmania won the bidding war. This is the young brother-sister duo's first working dog purchase, as Ashley Meeburn explains. It was pretty exciting, and I'm just glad we got her. Like, yeah. So why were you so interested in her? What did you see when you were watching the demos today? I just really liked, well, just her practicality for me and really for what I wanted something ready to go really practical for what I wanted easy and she's very uh, lovable and friendly dog when you're not working sheep as well which is I really like. You guys are are pretty young tell me a bit about your business. So we've got a few merinos down in Tassie that we run and uh, breed a few rams and things and yes we just and we brought a bit more land for uh, my brother and I and Yes, it's our first Kelpie uh, working dog purchase and she'll be a great asset to our growing team. They were not expecting to nab the top price. I thought some other ones could have, might have went for a bit more, but um, no. Did it blow the budget? Uh, I think she's going to be a good dog, so... (laughs) While $27,000 is an eye-watering price for a dog, it still falls short of the national record. Hoover, a Kelpie from Victoria, holds that gong at $35,200. 49 dogs were put through their paces to demonstrate their skills before being put up for auction. Casterton Kelpie Association Vice President Rob Pilmore says the animals were top quality. So we, we've actually got a really wide range of dogs this year of, uh, of age and skill. This year, Megan, the um, probably one of the best varieties across a whole section of, of, of uh, skills and age groups. And I noticed there's some dogs come from interstate. Yeah, no, this year we've uh, dogs as far north as Dubbo have come down and uh, dogs out of the Gippsland area. We've got dogs here from Tasmania, across in the southeast of South Australia, and, of course, plenty of dogs from, from locally out of Victoria here. 
The Casterton Kelpie muster has made a name for itself. More than 10,000 people came through the door for the weekend of festivities. Association President Karen Stevens says they've never had numbers like that before. We've had up to 8,000, so 10,000. So it just really proved to us that everybody wants to get out after two years of being cooped up after COVID. And um, we certainly saw some, you know, very happy people yesterday and um, getting involved in all the activities and just having a great time. What does the Kelpie muster mean to Casterton? Oh, look, the committee started 26 years ago, you know, branding Casterton as the birthplace of the Kelpie, which is our is, is our naming right. We've just pushed that brand all the way through. So, you know, we want people to come to Casterton throughout the year. It, um, it drives our economy here. We know that, it, you know, the muster over the weekend puts about $1.7 into our community. And the fact that we know that people have Casterton on their bucket list now as a place to visit, is just really exciting for us. Custard and Kelpie Association President Karen Stevens ending that report. That's all today from me on Countrywide. If I've piqued your interest in all things rural, you can always head online to abc.net.au forward slash rural.